on this episode. Did Satoshi Nakamoto just cash in some Bitcoin? Tron 4.0 receives cool reception. The World Economic Forum unveils the Blockchain Bill of Rights. Did anybody notice? And over in China, new smart contracts, massive investments in new infrastructure like blockchain and IoT. Welcome to The Current Forecast, the podcast supplemental that dives into the top blockchain and emerging technology stories of the week, curated by the Forecast News editorial team. Welcome to episode 14, week of May 24th, 2020. I'm Angie Lau, Forecast News Editor-in-Chief, and joining me as usual is our senior correspondent, Sam Reynolds, our Forecast Insights guru, Sam Reynolds. Reynolds, how are you today? Give me one second. I'm just buying some votes right now for my Twitter poll. <laughs> Best podcast co-host, first place, Sam Reynolds, 9,000 votes. Wow, Sam. Okay. All right. that, that's a nice little tease for uh, a Tron story that's coming up. <laughs> well, actually, let's talk about that first. Tron 4.0, Justin Sun, is... Added again. Is this ego added again? Okay, so essentially uh Tron 4.0 is uh is is trying to address pain points from its platform. Uh and uh, essentially it is um announcing that it's improved on privacy, blockchain interoperability, high scalability, and enterprise applications. He even uh tweeted out to Vitalik uh Buterin on uh ETH 2.0 and said on a Twitter poll that's <laughs> becoming very infamous right now in, in terms of uh, references. In a Twitter poll, he's he asked the Twittersphere what they thought if uh, Ethereum or Tron was better. And surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. Uh, well, initially, Ethereum had a pretty solid lead. A lead. However, there are some pretty serious allegations that there were votes bought in Tron's favor to tip the poll towards Tron. Now, look, here's the thing. I actually think that Tron, the technology itself, has some merit. I mean, they are addressing a few big pain points uh, with blockchain, especially they're doing things that right now Ethereum can't do. Like, for instance, they have a much higher capacity for transactions a second. And they do have some neat things like integrating uh, BitTorrent into their cloud storage uh, you know, offerings, right? So lots of potential with Tron. However, the problem is Justin Sun's ego and the company's poor PR skills makes them the laughing stock of the broader crypto sphere. But if, uh, but beside that point, uh, the the launch is it garnering the kind of excitement from the community? Is it going to be enterprise grade ready? What are the the tweaks here that that really elevate its game? Here's the thing. I will answer that question actually by repeating a comment I read on Reddit. Oh. I was so happy for Tron 3.0. That said in sarcasm, because the fact is, you know, while Tron has all this potential, they are victim to the old buzzword game where they say, oh, privacy, oh, scalability, stuff like that. It, it's tough to actually figure out the technical merits of their improvements because it's lost in 
the uh, you know the buzzwords and stuff like that. So I couldn't tell you you know what the value of Tron 4.0 is. I could probably tell you what the value of Tron is, but these improvements are simply for marketing and probably to get people excited about buying their token again. Uh, Tron has right now slipped down to the 17th biggest crypto by market cap uh, this morning on coin market cap. And uh, yeah, things don't look good because the interest is not there from people. Uh, EOS, Litecoin, Binance coin, these are all tokens that have momentum. Tron, not so much. Mm. Uh, so Twitter poll or not, uh, Justin Sun's got to get on that. <laughs> Let's talk about our next story here. Satoshi sighting alert. Did we did we actually get a Satoshi Nakamoto event here? Did the original Bitcoin creator just cash in 50 Bitcoins from a wallet that has laid dormant since 2009? That's the buzz right now all over all over uh, uh, the internet and and the digital space and cyberspace, what people are really wondering if if this uh, is Satoshi Nakamoto. Well, the problem with the whole Satoshi mythology and the fact we don't know who they, him, her, whatever, actually, you know, who they are. The problem is this gives a market for false prophets and also for people that just want the attention. So, for instance. Uh, John McAfee likes to claim almost yearly on the mark that he is soon to reveal the identity of Satoshi. Then you have people like Craig Wright, the uh, disgraced Australian computer scientist who is, you know, a serial fabulist between his uh, career achievements and educational merits, saying that he has access to, you know, some of these first wallets and therefore he must be Satoshi. So on that note, actually, a very funny point came up recently. Um, these wallets called the Tulip Trust, which are not Satoshis, but are likely owned by a Satoshi associate, they all signed a message with their private keys saying that Mr. Wright is a, quote, liar and a fraud. So. The point is, perhaps Satoshi did move some Bitcoins, you know, over. Perhaps he's cashing out because COVID-19 kills other investments. Who knows? The fact is, the mythology, the mystery of the person creates these false prophets, which distract us from, you know, everything. And, you know, it's okay that we don't know who Satoshi is. We don't need to know who he is. But he's already quite annoying to people. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's akin to, I guess, a little bit of Pulp Fiction. And now let's go encyclopedic and talk about the uh, Blockchain Bill of Rights. Uh, this was uh, uh, released by the World Economic Forum. They published the Blockchain Bill of Rights, uh, which has been signed by 15 groups, uh, mostly uh, corporates and uh, private enterprise uh, but the principles include transparency and accessibility, agency and interoperability, essentially the right for participants to own and manage their own data, uh, privacy and security, obviously huge, 
in terms of data protection and the future of, of data management and uh, accountability and governance, uh, essentially the right for participants to understand what recourse they have against uh, a system um, and, and, you know, what rights that they can reinforce. This is interesting uh, for the scope, but I guess what's also interesting is how little attention is being paid to this. I mean, you're right. People aren't exactly talking about this on the front page because blockchain applications, e-apps, they're largely right now enterprise-based. So you wouldn't interact with it as a person. It is the plumbing, the infrastructure that works behind the scenes. You know, I like this a lot. I like the principle a lot. But the thing is, you know, where were these 10 years ago? These would be great guiding principles for companies that monetize your data for advertising, like Facebook and Google. Uh, but these weren't there a decade ago. And if we had them, we might have avoided some of these uh, major scandals where Facebook was found to be abusing all the data we trust with it. Well, and, and that saying, if you're not paying for uh, it, you're the product. And, and we have, as a society, really become so commoditized. Our data is not our own. And with blockchain, what's interesting is that it actually returns the power of our own information back into our hands uh, by reinforcing on a ledger uh, that, that, you know, that we own it, we can decide whether or not we release certain buckets of information uh, for either business or otherwise. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, not everybody needs to know everything about us. That, that KYC AML issue aside, um, there, there's just a lot of B2C functionality that doesn't demand you giving up all of your private information. And I, I'm with you, Sam. I wish this was, you know, 10 years ago, decades ago, but it's, it's, uh, it's hindsight is 2020, but it's not too late, right? Well, that's right. I mean, the business model is different here. It's not relying on monetizing your data. It's a different business model. So I do like the initiative and what they are trying to communicate, but I don't think it's effective for blockchain apps. What, what do you mean it's not effective for blockchain apps? Well, just because the fact is that blockchain apps don't follow that pathway to monetization. They don't have that methodology of having a free product in exchange for granular access to your data, like your likes and your contact list, stuff like that. Largely speaking, it's a different way to monetize things. And so these ideas of transparency, you know, having agency over that data, while they are relevant by all means, it's not as relevant or as urgent as in cases where your data is the product, where mm -hmm. the social contract of that free access means mm -hmm. exposure to your data and having your interests, having your data points as a way to advertise to you in a better fashion. So are you saying that these the, the blockchain bill of rights is almost um, redundant because the technology already enforces a lot of this stuff? Um, absolutely. It's both redundant and not really required right now. Perhaps one day when DApps are, you know, in 
uh, ubiquitous formats, perhaps, but right now they aren't. Right now, blockchain plays an invisible role in the infrastructure of enterprise. It's not a B2C product at this mm. time and doesn't follow the methodology of exchanging data for advertising. Mm-hmm. Interesting point. Interesting point there. All right, let's wrap things up and talk about China. China's always very interesting in in what it's advancing. Um, let's first talk about Ant Financial here. The blockchain technology team internally announced a blockchain contract service opening uh, for small and medium-sized enterprises on its official WeChat account. What does that mean? So it means that smart contracts are finally becoming mainstream. So smart contracts have been around for a while with Ethereum. And in theory, they're a very effective way to reduce the friction and the time it takes to close a contract because you have this way of automating this escrow process. So, okay, when part A of the deal is fulfilled, when I give X, I get Y. However, you know, despite this potential and despite this merit, they aren't really being used in any kind of real-world deployment right now. That's about to change. With Ant Financial's scale, if they put this through and it works for them, expect others to follow their lead. Expect others to also offer smart contracts in their software stack. So for things like, for instance, you know, real estate closing rooms where you bring together the buyer, seller, and agent, a smart contract is going to expedite that whole process. It's not right now, but you know, expect it to be in the future once Ant Financial proves to the world that they work. Well, Ant Financial's not the only one in this race. I think a lot of private enterprise and companies across China are, are in this collective race. And, and we saw that evidenced by this year's annual report on work of government. This is the National People's Congress uh, plenary session. This is, I don't even want to say one of the most important, it is the most important legislative uh, meetings uh, of communist China, uh, essentially coming together. The government is establishing um, what guidance uh, they're going to be putting the country on for the next year. Um, and this report on work of government uh, re- shared uh, by none other than Premier Li Keqiang uh, basically said that the Chinese government plans to invest about $600 billion, uh, b- I'm sorry, 600 billion yuan in developing new infrastructures and new information infrastructures this year. So w- what does that actually mean? It means that they're going to invest in, by, infra- by new information infrastructure, they mean blockchain, 5G, IoT. It's very interesting there. Yes. I mean, you'll, you'll see that with China, you know, the investment in blockchain at this point means that they will write the standards for the future. And the first part of that is a nationwide blockchain service network. So if China invests this much money in technology like blockchain, they define the standards, you know, we play by their rules. And that's going to be a wake-up call to the West because, you know, the perfection perhaps of the Chinese, you know, state-run system, while there are many flaws, is that once you see a technology that is superior, like blockchain, you can order investment in it versus trying to wait around for the market to figure it out. 
In this case, it's that top-down approach. Investment happens. Standards happen. They write the rule book. So with 5G, that's also happening in parallel. And you know, that might result in a split between uh, you know, the US-aligned 5G standards and China's 5G standards. But blockchain's different, right? The reason why you have that split in 5G is because of the risk perceived or real of China intercepting communications. With blockchain, though, as a big part of that is transparency and open ledgers, there's not that same risk of you know, data being intercepted. However, the fact is, you know, while ISO was in Geneva post-World War II, you know, the blockchain ISO might be in Guangzhou. <laughs> That's just, I mean, how, how interesting this conversation has truly evolved. I, I'm just thinking the last uh, real global conversation that we had about blockchain and cryptocurrency on a global stage was June of last year, uh, the G20 meeting in Osaka. It was just really kind of clear in my mind. Uh, I remember that very well. We we did a lot of coverage on it on Forecast. And now, uh, less than a year later, we are talking about the Chinese racing ahead with um, not only embracing blockchain technology um, and wanting to invest in it, but, but clearly working on a new information infrastructure, uh, the, the, the only way that they've characterized it. As you said, it's, it's uh, you know, to have that new ISO to actually be based in, in Guangdong, it's, it's not inconceivable, but it's just, it, it's, it's, it's incredible to watch. With the G20, though, I think a big theme of that meeting about blockchain was about trying to write the rule book to avoid money laundering, to ensure that crypto exchanges would not be vehicles for, you know, organized crime or terrorists, what have you. But in China, that's not really part of the conversation because cryptocurrency is for the most part banned. There is no crypto conversation because it simply does not exist in China. It is for the most part banned. So I think that actually is more productive because you can focus that energy and political capital on infrastructure, not figuring out ways to, you know, create new rules to avoid uh, money laundering. Well, it's, it's a great it's a great observation, Sam. It's the old world trying to figure out how to adapt the technology within its own rules. And then in this example, what we're seeing is a new set of rules are being established, new infrastructure, new way of doing business uh, internally in China uh, is is being created as we speak. So uh, we're going to just keep watching this. Uh, we're going to keep reporting on it. And we thank our audience for joining us with increasing regularity on the current forecast. And of course, Sam, as usual, thanks for your brilliant insights. And it's always a pleasure. Yes. Well, thank you. All right. And thank you, the rest of you, for joining us on the latest episode of The Current Forecast. I'm Angie Lau, Forecast News Editor-in-Chief, signing off. Thanks, Sam Reynolds. Thanks, everyone. 